Hello and welcome to the latest podcast in our series, Living with Diabetes, brought to you by Diabetes Research and Wellness Foundation. In this extended edition, we review the trends of the last decade and look ahead to the prospects for diabetes in the 2020s. The trend continues relentlessly upwards on the one hand, while research holds great promise on the other. But the challenge of staying well until a cure is found continues, as we'll hear from DRWF's UK Chief Executive, Sarah Tutton. Diabetes is now considered to be one of the fastest growing health issues of the 21st century, with type 2 diabetes being one of the world's most common conditions, which is shocking. We'll discover more about a new online programme and support available through the NHS in some parts of the country. Robbie Puddick tells us about our path. People regularly report more energy, better sleep, um, clearly weight loss and, and one of the most important things is hunger. Their hunger levels drop significantly. We'll have a look at the latest research, including a DRWF funded investigation into using stem cells to improve the robustness of islet transplantation. If we continue to make sort of progress with the research that we're doing and that DRWF are funding, then it really could be a game changer in the future. And we'll be reviewing the current coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic and what it will mean for people living with diabetes. There are some suggestions that uh, corona can cause more severe symptoms in people with long-term conditions such as diabetes. We don't know for certain it could be because of the immune system or it could be because of more chance of having other long-term conditions such as heart problems, kidney problems and everything which can make them more susceptible. And also uh, having a COVID infection or a corona infection will can make uh, their diabetes control temporarily worse. You know, keep up the fantastic work you all are doing. Uh, a massive, massive thank you to all. You know what? We'll come through this and there's no reason this won't end in the very near future. We'll, we'll meet again and hey, we've got so much, so much other stuff planned, you know. And on behalf of anybody who's a healthcare professional in the NHS, thank you so much. I mean, it really means a lot to us. Um, and uh, hey, let's, let's keep it that way. I'm Claire Levy from DRWF the host of our regular podcast, Living with Diabetes. For this edition, we're starting with a review of the past decade and looking ahead to the next. I asked DRWF's UK Chief Executive, Sarah Tutton, what the highlights are from her perspective. Uh, the number of adults living with diabetes has more than tripled over the past 20 years and, and in particular between 2009 and 2019, the International Diabetes Federation reported that that increase was around 62%. So rising from 285 million adults uh, with diabetes aged between 20 and 79 in 2009 to around 463 million globally in 2019 over that 10 year period. And uh, diabetes is now considered to be one of the fastest growing health issues of the 21st century, with type 2 diabetes being one of the world's most common conditions, which is shocking. I think the, um, uh, the IDF recent report says that around a further 1.1 million children and young people under the age of 20 are living with type 1 diabetes. And in the UK... 
that's around 4 million people. So about 6% of the, the population are living with diabetes in the UK. And largely that, that continued rise is, is due to type 2 diabetes, which is often linked to obesity and unhealthy lifestyles. But also ageing and ethnicity are also risk factors. So currently type 2 diabetes accounts for around 90% of all diabetes in the UK. And how about the trends with treatment over the last 10 years? I think that we should kind of differentiate between type 1 and, and, and type 2. So type 1 diabetes, which can't be prevented, is always treated with insulin therapy, either alone or in combination with other medications. And whilst we're almost 100 years on from the time that insulin was discovered in 1921, it remains the key to life for people with type 1 diabetes. There's been a huge amount of focus on, on, on prevention of type 2 diabetes over the last 10 years, more so in more recent years, um, because type 2 can be prevented and a healthy diet and active lifestyle can help to reduce the risk of type 2. It can sometimes be managed with lifestyle changes alone, but is often treated with oral medications and sometimes insulin therapy. People that live with diabetes, regardless of type, have a unique set of risk factors, management and treatment requirements, and there's def very definitely no one-size-fits-all approach. So I think it's really important that people have access to the best technology and treatment options for them and their all-round health, not just diabetes, as many people living with diabetes are often living with, with quite complex health issues. So whilst there have been considerable progress in new oral medications, insulin delivery devices and blood glucose monitoring systems over more recent years, making them available to everyone is more tricky and many groups are working collaboratively to reduce variation of access across the UK to ensure people can benefit from these advances as quickly as possible. You said there about um, preventing type 2. Uh, do, do you want to say something about the fact that you can't always prevent type 2 diabetes developing. I'm thinking about ethnic minority groups. I think type 2 is very often um, considered just to be a, a, a diet and lifestyle issue, but, but quite often it is related to ethnicity, increased risk of type 2 diabetes in ethnic communities, um, and also an ageing population. So we've got an ageing population, people are living for longer, we've got better, me better medical treatments, we're living better lifestyles in many respects, but, but certainly in the case of type 2 diabetes, um, as we start to slow down in later life, um, certainly uh, our body uses the insulin that is produced less effectively and that's obviously a, a also a contributing factor to the incidence of, of type 2 diabetes. So looking at research, um, what do you want to talk about and, and highlight that DRWF has supported over the last 10 years? I think it would be good to think about our research, our rounded research strategy and to say that um, so DRWF funded research has two key strands, a, a proactive strategy, which is focused on finding a cure and is largely related to our commitment to exploring islet cell transplants as a means of reversing type 1 diabetes. And we've been committed to this both as a UK group and as a wider diabetes research network with our groups in US, France, Sweden, Finland and Norway for the past 18 years. 
So great strides have been made in islet transplantation, particularly in the UK, where transplants are funded by the NHS for a group of people living with type 1 diabetes who experience debilitating and life-threatening hypoglycemia unawareness. So an islet transplant is an option which is explored when all routine treatments have been exhausted and have been unable to resolve and stabilise blood sugar levels. And there are limiting factors to the success and longevity of an islet transplant, but our research is exploring ways in which to address these issues. We've recently supported um, EPTA, which is the European Pancreas and Islet Transplant Association. And that's a European meeting of, of leading clinicians and scientists working in the field of islet research and transplant, where these experts share recent advances and challenges to help each other further their respective work globally. Our set, the second strand of our research funding strategy is all about being reactive. And by that, what I mean is that we fund clinical and non-clinical fellowships and project grants where a diabetes researcher is working on a specific diabetes project, which is going to improve our understanding of diabetes, its, its treatment, management, or even prevention. And a, an example of this type of funding is the My Diabetes Study, which was run by Dr. Shivani Misra at Imperial College London. And Dr. Misra's study investigated whether ethnicity had an impact on diabetes presentation and type. So she ran a study which recruited participants from across England um, and classified types of diabetes in people with young onset diabetes from different ethnic groups to help answer that question. And ultimately, the study found that thousands of patients may have been misdiagnosed because of misconceptions about the role and the impact that ethnicity has on presentation of diabetes. And obviously, if, if people are misdiagnosed, then the chances are that they are being mistreated. And that can often um, uh, lead to complications arising because they've not been treated with the right treatment at the right time. So that was a really important study that, that um, Dr. Misra ran, um, exploring how ethnicity impacts on diagnosis and treatment of diabetes. So let's look forward then, and um, we've got another 10 years to look at, and sort of things that you're anticipating uh, for the charity. What about incidence of type 1 and type 2, both UK and worldwide? Do you see that increasing exponentially? Well, if predictions are correct, the number of people living with diabetes in the UK will increase to around 5 million by 2025. And of course, that's only five short years away. Um, and globally, IDF is estimating that there, there will be around 578 million adults, so close to 600 million adults with diabetes by 2030. Um, there are obviously national programs that have been tested and rolled out over the past two or three years, which aim to help people understand risk of type 2 diabetes in order to take preventative actions. And that type of work or that type of effort working in parallel with obesity related programs all seek to reduce the numbers of people being diagnosed with type 2. Um, it's probably too early to tell whether that will, will help to quell the rise, but certainly much is being done through collaborative efforts to try and address the continued rise of type 2 diabetes in particular. Looking forward, uh, what advances in treatment do you think are anticipated and, and what are we hoping for? I, I think I, I would uh, answer that in, um, in relation to research around advances in treatment um, and I think people living with diabetes and all that entails understandably want to see the benefits of research in the quickest time frame to make their lives that bit easier 
if possible. And um, to, to do this, we need to ensure that there is maximum investment in the right kinds of research and wider collaboration to pool expertise and maintain momentum and look at ways in which to bring new technology to market sooner whilst addressing variation of access. There are huge amounts of, of research being undertaken worldwide to help us address the issues of, 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 of diabetes, both it, our understanding of, of, of type 1 and type 2 diabetes, um, management strategies and, and treatment strategies. But I think really it's, it's about ensuring that, that we've got investment in the right kind of research um, to enable us to bring um, the clinical benefits of research to, to people with diabetes in the shortest time frame. And that moves us nicely into looking forward into what the sort of uh, research will DRWF be looking to support? I think we'll be looking to do more of, of, of the same in many respects in terms of our, um, our proactive approach to finding a cure through our commitment to islet cell transplant and, and uh, research and transplant. Um, and uh, widening that somewhat to not just look at islet cells but also to look at stem cell so insulin insulin cells that are derived from stem cell research and some of that was as was discussed in in quite wide detail at the EPITA conference in Austria just a few weeks ago in terms of our reactive streams because we have quite a broad strategy in that we are looking at any kind of work that is likely to improve our understanding of, of all types of diabetes, um, our fellowship and our pump priming awards are really quite lucrative in that respect, um, as exampled by, by Dr. Mistra's study and the benefit that that has brought to, um, to our understanding of ethnicity in, in diabetes diagnosis. Um, so we'll be, we'll be pretty much doing more of the same, but what we will look to do, I think, is collaborate, collaborate more widely with, with other groups working in the field of diabetes research so that we can maximise and capitalise on um, financial investment to increase our financial investment. We're looking at short, medium and long-term strategy really and I think um, our, our, really, our focus has always really been on what we've called fast-track research, so supporting fast-track research and that really is the types of, of project that, that are going to bring um, tangible benefits to people living with diabetes in the quickest time frame. I think, you know, the, the challenges for, 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 for people living with diabetes are, are, are many. Um, and I imagine that, that there are different challenges for different people. But I would think that access to technology to support management of diabetes, what, whatever that technology is, is vitally important. Having a knowledgeable and supportive diabetes healthcare professional who has a, a holistic approach to both physical and mental well-being, access to the right education and information at the right time. All, all of these things play an important part in helping people with diabetes live their healthiest lives. And that's pretty much what underpins everything that we do here at DRWF. And that is in line with our strap line of staying well until a cure is found. So providing that practical support whilst the research we're funding is looking to find a cure. And that's our last sort of uh, section for today, uh, looking at that staying well until a cure is found and what challenges there are for people. I think overall, uh, interviewing people for the podcast, it's often about organising your own good self-management and education and having an understanding, as you say, from the healthcare professionals and, and making people a little bit more self-aware, I suppose, of what they need to know. I know that sounds... A bit backwards, but understanding what you have to know to know what you need to know 
is quite useful, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think um, that personalised care, because there is no one size fits all and everyone wants something slightly different from their healthcare professional. So, you know, I, I do think that, that, that we're often trying to be all things to all people and that's not always possible. But just being aware that, that there are very different needs um, to address um, and involving people with diabetes in the decisions around what is right for them is the most most important important thing to to, to remember drwf staying well until a cure is found we'll look in more detail at current research later in the podcast a new program called our path is becoming available through the nhs in some parts of the country Robbie Puddick is a registered nutritionist and the NHS lead for Our Path. He told me about its development and how it can help those living with diabetes, especially type 2. So Our Path essentially begun uh, when our co-founders, Mike and Chris, they were working for advisors to the NHS a few years ago. And uh, within their work, they kept coming up, uh, coming across the issue of type 2 diabetes within the NHS um and they're both uh well one i think it was uh chris went to cambridge i think mike went to oxford um you know both very intelligent chris has got a background in software engineering and mike uh, did life sciences degrees um and i think it was just so ever present that they kind of got together and they started talking about uh ways that um they could potentially fight this like how like why is it such a big uh, why is touch diabetes such a big issue? Is there another way we can tackle it? So they did a bit of research and um, I think they first did a bit of research into behavioural science and the impact of peer support in terms of behaviour change. And they essentially set up a WhatsApp group with their friends and family, sent them a recipe book that they put together um, and just kind of observed what happened. And over the course of sort of three months, Everyone started losing weight and, um, you know, supporting each other and helping each other um, achieve a better lifestyle effectively. So um, then they really thought, OK, we've got something here. So Chris built the app um, and Mike wrote all the content, all the nutrition content, all the positive psychology stuff that we cover. It's sort of very different now to what it was then, but the fundamentals are still the same. So it's still a three month digital program. It's still based on the fundamentals of behavioral science and uh, CBT and positive psychology, um, but just with a lot better app and a lot more staff than it did in those days. Hmm. Is it aimed solely at people living with type 2? So um, it was when we first started. So they, they were first um, commissioned by the NHS in a type 2 diabetes structure education uh, contract. Um, and we do have specific type 2 contracts across the country. But um, so we kind of cater our uh, content to the sort of the, the, the population that we're working with. So we are all obviously all the type two contracts we work with. We have type two diabetes specific content. And I think for me that the biggest reason it helps people living with type two diabetes is because we don't. Um, you know, we're not talking about project fear. We don't uh, warn them against what will happen if they don't do anything. It's not about um, trying to educate them on what type 2 diabetes is and what it will do. We offer them a message of hope. And um, it's all about this is what uh, you can do to improve your lifestyle, to improve your health. And this will in turn have a very positive impact on your blood glucose regulation, on your weight 
and just on your general well-being. So we very much, like I said before, focus on uh, positive psychology. So if you're in a better place in your life, if you're in a better mood when you wake up in the morning, you're more than likely going to make a more uh, wiser, mindful decision on your food choices, etc. Um, so I think that's the main reason it helps people living with type 2 diabetes is that we cover the whole package. It's not just this is what you need to eat. So we give them a diet plan. It's not what we do whatsoever. We try and educate them around nutrition and just around how practically how to apply um, healthy lifestyle behaviours into their day to day lives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How does it work and what happens when you sign up to this? So when you sign up, um, essentially, this could be via two avenues. You could either do this via your GP. Um, so if you are type 2 diabetic and we were commissioned in your area, um, your GP could refer you on to the programme. We also have a few contracts uh, such as South West London and uh, North East Hants and Farnham where it's a self-referral where you go on to something called Diabetes Book and Learn and um, you sign up to the programme yourself. So we get very motivated individuals through that pathway. Um, in the Diabetes Prevention Programme, uh, you're again referred via your GP and then um, sort of th uh, thread uh, through to us and uh, we get in touch and call you and get you signed up. Um, or you can go through our consumer pathway. So if we're not commissioned in your specific area, um, you can sign up via the website um, and um, essentially just fill out all the information. You complete a health quiz so we can sort of try and personalize the program to you. So you just sort of complete a few questions around your main priorities, your goals. Uh, is it to lose weight? Is it just to achieve better health and well-being? Is it to exercise more? That kind of thing. Um, and then you will choose a start date. And then once you've chosen a start date, uh, we will send out our health box with our uh, scales and um, and activity track week before. Um, so, yeah, how does it work? It's essentially a six-month digital health program uh, for NHS um, uh, users. For people coming through consumer, it's a three-month program with a, uh, a rolling uh, follow-on community called Sustain. And um, so throughout this time, we provide educational articles that are released daily on the app. Um, you also have the support of a registered dietitian a registered or a registered nutritionist as your health coach. And they're on hand to analyze your food diaries, help you set goals, and just be there as, as a support system, essentially. So um, I like to like to think there's there's obviously it's completely down to different individuals the level of support they need. Some people are very uh, concise and factual, and they just want to know, uh, you know, Robbie, how should I balance out my meals? You know, what can I do to help me lose more weight? And they just need the factual answer, and then they'll go away and do it. Some pe some other people will need a bit more sort of support. Um, and uh, all our coaches are trained in motivational interviewing and NLP to try and help people sort of discover uh, their inner motivation and prioritize their intrinsic and extrinsic motivation to, um, to achieve their goals. Um, and then the, alongside this, you're also placed in a group of uh, other people, uh, a group of 10 to 15 people, all looking to achieve the same thing. Again, like we uh, discussed before about the WhatsApp group that started, it was all based on behavioral science showing that if you're in a, a group, then you're more than likely um, you're more likely to be successful than whether if you went to make lifestyle changes on your own. So we've tried to recreate that in the app uh, to great success. And um, then obviously you can track your weight and activity uh, through our technology, so through our scales and activity tracker. If you if you cho choose to have them as well, yeah. And and how much exercise <laughs> is involved in getting in, in doing this? 
So this is completely individual. We do provide um, 10 weeks of exercise videos that we've designed ourselves, and they're just uh, body weight exercises that you can complete from home. But it really is individual. So we, we, we do uh, discuss the sort of government targets of 150 minutes of moderate 70 or 75 minutes of vigorous with some strength training in there as well. Um, but it's, it's completely individual. I have, I have many users that come on and they're starting from scratch. Maybe they only walk to the shops, etc. So it's about um, setting realistic goals. And the best piece of advice I try and uh, give to anyone on the program is just to try and do more than you did yesterday. Any movement's beneficial. Any exercise is beneficial. Um, and yeah, just try and build up as you go. Obviously, I encourage people to do as much um, exercise as they as they can within their that, that's comfortable within their lives. Um, I personally believe exercise is a really strong keystone habit and one that uh, typically people that exercise more, you know, they, they, they tend to eat well, they tend to sleep better, have less stress and things like that. So, yeah, but it's really just about, you know, having uh, setting realistic goals based on your situation at the moment. And things that you enjoy doing, I think, isn't it? Yeah, no, you're completely right. Yeah, it's, if you're enjoying the exercise, you're more likely um, you're more likely to carry it on. Many users don't actually do our uh, exercise videos that we put in the content. They're absolutely fine. If they're doing something they enjoy and they're bringing, uh, they're getting a benefit from it, then, you know, that's brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, and what sort of results can I expect? So, I mean, again, this does um, vary from person to person, but if we're looking at um, averages in terms of weight loss and HbA1c reductions for people with type 2 diabetes, over 50% of um, our participants achieve between 5 to 10% uh, um, of, uh, of weight loss and um, around 25% achieving over 10% uh, weight loss. And I think the 12-month figure for our type 2 contracts is around 6.5 kilograms on average people lose after a year so our um, weight loss is sustained from three to from three to 12 months which is really positive um, and in regards to hbr1c reductions our average reductions at the moment at six months are around 14 millimoles per moles and actually in our portsmouth pilot in 2017 40 percent of our users in that pilot i think there was around 80 people 80 to 100 participants so around 40 to 50 of those participants achieved uh, an HbA1c measurement of below 48 millimoles mm. per mole three months. So we can't define that as remission because it requires HbA1c measurements of um, below 48 uh, back to back six months between uh, between them, uh, with all medications removed. But yeah, it's still a quite a significant um, um, percentage of our cohort that managed to get below that 48 within the three months, which is really positive. Um, and just anecdotally from my side as a coach, people regularly report more energy, better sleep, um, clearly weight loss. And, for, and one of the most important things is hunger. So when people are on a, um, a highly a diet of high in um, processed foods and refined uh, grains and sugar, they're constantly hungry, which is it's a physiological and a psychological thing. They're pulled towards food consistently. But when um, they follow our guidelines and um, maybe they're drinking more water, they're sleeping better, their hunger levels drop significantly. And if you're not hungry, you're going to be in a lot better position to make a mindful decision about your next meal. Um, 
so rather than people you know scraping around for whatever they can find to just plug that hole it's more about you know they're like okay yeah i'm i'm feeling a bit hungrier but it a bit hungry but it's not that desperation to eat it's much more controlled and for me as a health coach and a nutritionist uh, that's in terms of physical um change that's what's really important so just remind everybody where they can access this and, and where they can find out more information. So they can head, I think the best place is our website. So rpath, uh, www.rpath.co.uk. Um, on the top right hand corner, you will see a button that says take our health quiz. Um, but feel free to scan through our website. We've got loads of scientific guides on there from healthy eating to exercise and, and stress and sleep, etc. We've also got um, more information about our NHS work on the NHS section in there. There's also some um, user stories. So we've got lots of stories of our users that have completed that on there to give you an idea um, of what to experience, of what you might experience. Um, but you can also find us through the NHS uh, NHS apps library, and that will effectively just take you through to our uh, to our website as well. So they're the best two places to find out for sure. DRWF, staying well until a cure is found. As Sarah Tutton mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, research is another major component of DRWF's work across a whole range of investigations and developments. Before we hear about one of those projects, I asked DRWF's research manager, Eleanor Kennedy, for her perspective on our work in this area. I think DRWF does make a difference to researchers. Um, without putting too fine a point on it, as a, as, a, as a researcher myself, anybody that, any funding agency is going to make a difference to, to the life of a researcher because we live or die by getting grants because otherwise we can't do the research. And if we can't do the research, then we're never going to find a cure. What makes DRWF stand a little apart from other researchers, I feel, is the close relationship that we have with our, our researchers. We're a, we're a relatively small charity, but that doesn't mean that we can't have a big impact. And it also means that um, I have the um, great pleasure of being able to go around our sites and talk to the researchers that are funded by us. And I think that connection is quite unique. Um, and from the feedback that I've received, it's also very well received. So I, I do think that DRWF, not just the funding makes a different to research, um, difference to researchers, but we're giving them a platform to, to talk to me um, as the research manager, but also talk to all the supporters of DRWF, because as I said, we've, we actually publish their research stories and put them on our website. To get an insight into what our support means to researchers, I've been talking to Chloe Rackham, a DRWF Research Fellow at King's College London. She's been looking into the various factors which affect the success of islet transplantation, particularly in terms of the survivability of the cells, which can be low, requiring two or three transplant sessions to be effective. She's just published a paper looking at one of those mechanisms where stem cells have improved the robustness of islet cells by transferring the mitochondria into beta cells. I asked Chloe to outline her work and how our support makes a difference. So my research is titled Improving Islet Transplantation Outcomes by Harnessing the Mesenchymal Stromal Cell Secretome to Target the Donor Islet Graft and Host Environment. So our research 
basically aims to define the mechanisms through which mesenchymal stromal cells, um, we also refer to these these sort of um, adult stromal or stem cells as uh, MSCs. So we're aiming to define the mechanism through which these MSCs um, but also the biologically active substances that they produce um, should be used to improve the efficiency of clinical islet transplantation uh, because islet transplantation can cu- uh, currently be offered as a, a therapy to a small number of people living with type 1 diabetes. But we really want to make the procedure more efficient so that more people can be uh, offered islet transplantation as a potential therapy. So it, it, it could be a real game changer in the future, couldn't it? Uh, certainly, I think you've sort of put the nail on the, the head there. I think, you know, as with any um, organ transplantation scenarios situation, there's a really severe shortage of the donor islet materials. So we're really sort of interested in making the procedure as efficient as possible so that we make the, the best use of that donor island material. But I think um, if we continue to make sort of progress with the research that we're doing and that DRWF are, are funding, then it really could be a game changer in the future because it, it, it can achieve really, really fantastic levels of blood glucose control and also eliminate the, the issues of severe hypoglycemia and hypoglycemia unawareness, which is a really significant uh, problem for those living with type 1 diabetes. And, and could you just describe the funding you did receive from DRWF and what a difference this funding meant for you and your career? Uh, yes, yeah, so I was uh, recently awarded a Professor David Matthews Fellowship from uh, DRWF and that's really helped to uh, facilitate my progression towards a, a fully independent research scientist within the field of diabetes um, and, and islet transplantation. And it's been really quite exciting and important as it's enabled me to, to form new scientific collaborations with other researchers in the field of diabetes to expand my own uh, research interests. Um, and I'm currently really excited by some of the work that I'm doing with um, immunologists in the field, uh, including Dr. Tim Tree at King's College um, and and that, that work is really sort of looking at MSCs and the biologically active substances they produce to limit inflammation, the proliferation of harmful immune cell populations which attack the transplanted islets and they significantly limit the lifespan of the islet graph and that's sort of one major aim that is really exciting um, to be addressed in this fellowship and, and I think really importantly the, the award of this independent research fellowship from DRWF will help to sort of facilitate me towards a, a long-term um, permanent academic position so I can continue to, to do this um, research in the future and to, to mentor other researchers in the field of diabetes um, so that we can keep trying to combat many of the hurdles which limit the more widespread application of islet transplantation people living with diabetes. DRWF, staying well until a cure is found. The current coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic is understandably causing concern for people living with diabetes and it's been identified as a high-risk group. To help you understand more and the potential implications, I've been talking to Professor Sathya, the Chair in Academic Diabetes, Endocrinology and Metabolism in the Hull York Medical School at the University of Hull and Honorary Consultant Endocrinologist at Hull and East Yorkshire Hospitals, NHS Trust. As you all know, uh, corona is an illness caused by this virus called COVID. 
and now it is a global pandemic all the countries in the world is having corona and the most common symptoms of this corona or the covid virus infection is either a high either a high temperature or a new onset cough or both and it can progress to the airways and lungs and in high risk people it can cause death so that is the importance of corona and the people who are at high risk are people who are older and all and have uh, long term health conditions such as heart diseases and diabetes so there is a warning about underlying medical conditions can you explain why people living with diabetes need to be so careful there is some suggestions that uh, corona can cause more severe symptoms in people with long term condition such as diabetes we don't know for certain it could be because of the immune system or it could be because got more chance of having other long term uh, conditions such as heart problems kidney problems and everything which can make them more susceptible and also uh, having a covid infection or a corona infection will can make uh, their diabetes control temporarily worse Is this the same for people living with type 1 and type 2 diabetes? The general principles uh, are the same. Uh, people with type 2 diabetes are generally more older and they got other long-term conditions, so they are more susceptible for developing complications due to corona infection. Whereas type patients with type 1 diabetes they are usually younger and they have got more chance of developing the uh, complications of type 1 diabetes such as diabetic ketoacidosis so in that way they are slightly different but the general principles remains the same so if your blood glucose levels are well managed is the risk the same the general uh, uh, thinking is that like if somebody has got well controlled diabetes the risk of developing complications from corona infection or covid-19 infection is less than people with a poorly controlled Uh, blood glucose and also people with poorly controlled diabetes uh, glucose have got more chance of having other uh, complications of diabetes and that could make them more susceptible for severe infection so what happens when blood glucose levels rise if the blood glucose levels rise they should follow the sick day rules there is a uh, document in uh, your diabetes research wellness foundation website i thought that was an excellent document and what they do is they should continue taking their tablets and insulin and they should keep themselves hydrated and if they're monitoring their blood glucose they should monitor it more often in people with type 1 diabetes they should check the ketones more often how if you continue to remain unwell and vomiting then you should seek help so that leaflet is on our website uh, what to do when you are ill Uh, yeah. and the sick day rules are in there and those rules just apply the same yes i thought it's an excellent document and in general that will apply the same and what about mental health people who are self isolating might be experiencing high levels of anxiety have you got any ideas of what they should do i think that's a good question uh, the, which not many people think about it could be very frustrating for somebody to self isolate or to for social or social dis- distancing the best thing to do would be to, to spend time on what they usually enjoy uh, such as cooking watching television programs 
or radio or or getting or opening the windows get some fresh air or contact uh, the relatives or friends through phone or internet that sort of things eating healthy keeping themselves hydrated do some gentle exercise at the home or in the garden if there is i think people are definitely uh, using internet based uh, technology so i think there's more things like zoom and skype and whatsapp yes. groups so i think they're all really really good aren't they they are they're, they're, they're excellent mode of communication especially to keep them active uh, and what about carers people who are looking after their family living with diabetes what should they do if they if they care they should follow the general precautions that everybody should be doing like hand hygiene respiratory hygiene and social distancing and they should also follow the government advice on self isolation like if anybody develops any symptoms they should self isolate if they are living alone for 7 days or if it's in a household uh, for uh, for 14 days and if somebody is a carer and uh, for somebody else and if they got exposed to a virus then they should make some alternative arrangement for carers including other relatives or friends or counsel are you still running clinics Uh, we converted most of the clinics into telephone clinics uh, and but we still see patients who we need to see because of the nature of illness I think uh, in these days everybody should be sensible and please look out for the daily government advice and nhs advice given because things are fluid and changing very rapidly DRWF staying well until a cure is found. Some of these points were emphasized in a message from Dr. Partha Carr, consultant in diabetes and endocrinology at Portsmouth Hospital's NHS Trust and a national speciality advisor on diabetes with NHS England. Hi guys, uh, how are we all doing? So you know to anybody who's got diabetes or anybody who has listened to this in spite of all the unbelievable hardship that lots of people are going through it looks like we're moving in the right direction so just keep at it stay at it nothing new to add to be honest just stay at home there's nothing new no new data there's nothing out there to change anything we're doing hospitals know what they need to do we have made uh, clear guidelines as to what needs to be safe uh, when you go into hospital if you are with diabetes and very worried about the impact of when you go into hospital well we have got teams there we got very clear guidance to all staff and hey the, the most important thing is we try and avoid you going into hospital at all unless we can uh, unless there's something that needs to be seen so um you know keep up the fantastic work you all are doing uh, a massive massive thank you to all uh, you know what we'll come through this and there's no reason this won't end in the very near future we'll we'll meet again and hey we got so much so much other stuff planned you know so uh, i am i am confident we'll have our good time but uh, at the moment again uh, just from the bottom of my heart and on behalf of anybody who's a healthcare professional in the nhs thank you so much i mean it's really means a lot to us um and uh yeah let's let's keep it that way we got hospital beds empty we're keeping it ready um and hopefully we don't need to use them so keep at it thank you um and uh let's let's catch up again soon thanks finally we return to DRWF CEO Sarah Tutton to summarize the current situation hi i'm sarah tutton chief executive of the diabetes research and wellness foundation 
I'd like to give you an update on DRWF and our operations at this time. Right now, the world is focused on the unprecedented impact that coronavirus is having on us all. Foremost in our thoughts is protecting our own health, that of family and friends and the wider population. This is absolutely our priority. Like most, DRWF is now working remotely. We've had to set up some interim systems to enable our team to work from home. They're not perfect by any means, but it does mean that we've been able to ensure the health and safety of the DRWF staff within the confines of their own four walls. Given the nature of our work, we have a number of our team who fall into the more vulnerable bracket. They're at higher risk of the impact of coronavirus should they contract it. They are shielded as so, and this means that they will be in isolation for for quite a long period of time. And we can only imagine that a good number of our supporters and volunteers would fall into that category too. We just want you to all know that, that we are thinking of you and we are sending our love and best wishes at this difficult time. We're operating as best as we can to ensure that any COVID-19 guidance, particularly where it aligns or or impacts on diabetes management, um, is is uploaded as quickly as possible to our website and shared through our social media channels, making it as easy to understand as possible and a reliable source of latest news. At the moment, we're able to continue mailing out our monthly diabetes wellness newsletter. We know that this is a very valuable source of information and support to people with diabetes who don't routinely use the internet and social media. Um, So we are looking to try and uh, continue to do that for as long as we possibly can. Sadly, we have had to cancel our Diabetes Wellness Day South, planned for early June. We will be in touch with all of our delegates who registered for this event to let you know about the package of information and support that we will be sending out to you to ensure that you benefit as much as possible from the information that you would have uh, learned from, from the event if you'd been able to attend. Hopefully, we will be able to continue with our Diabetes Wellness Day Midlands and Northeast events planned for later in the year. However, this is very much under review. Uh, really depends on how the COVID-19 situation unfolds as we move forward. Um, and we will let everyone know what the plans are for those future events just as soon as we can. Like many charities, we rely heavily on voluntary donations and fundraised income. We're expecting the next few months to be a really bumpy road financially. And as a medical research charity with high-value, multi-year research commitments in place, we're having to consider how we can continue to honour those those grant commitments. Uh, We're having to defer awards that uh, we had planned to make this year until such time as we can understand what the full impact of this current situation is likely to have on us in the short, medium and longer term. Diabetes is considered to be one of the 21st century's most challenging health issues and there is no doubt about it that once we're through this immediate global health threat, diabetes will still be there. It's our job to pick up the pieces and to honour that promise that we've made to people with diabetes to find a cure. If we can help at all during these challenging times, please do let us know. We can still be contacted in the usual way by telephone, email or by visiting our website or leaving a message on our social media channels. If you can help us and would like to make a gift at this time, please do so by visiting our website and donating online. In the meantime, stay home, stay well. We can do this together. We really appreciate your past commitment and your ongoing support. And we hope to see you very, very soon. DRWF, staying well until a cure is found. 
And that brings us to the end of this special edition of DRWF's podcast, Living with Diabetes. To keep up to date with the latest news and information, or to discover how you can continue to support DRWF at this challenging time, please visit the website at drwf.org.uk. Next time, we have a special report on foot care and the new Flexitol Simple Steps campaign. It's set against the backdrop of shocking statistics of lower limb amputation. We talked to a patient who speaks frankly about his experience. Because I've lost my eyesight quite drastically and I've lost my toes. Uh, but you can go a lot further. You can yes. end up losing your legs and, and that's all diabetes. Mm. Podiatrist Graham Bowen underlines the importance of good foot care as encouraged in the Flexitol Simple Steps campaign. It is a uh, dramatic impact a lower limb amputation will have on a patient's quality of life, their ability to mobilise, their ability to return to what they were doing pre-amputation. Plus also it has a significant impact on their mortality because having a foot ulcer and or a, uh, an amputation there is a 50% mortality rate at five years, which is worse than the four leading cancers. And we look at the work of a multi-purpose community centre which includes support for people living with diabetes. I meet Rebecca Spencer and Matt Mason of the John Pound Centre in Portsmouth. John Pound Centre was created um, in consultation with local residents and all the key facilities or services that were wanted or already running in the area were all pulled into this one building. It's a strong scheme. Um, we now take referrals from all over the city as well as outside of the city um, and it's a steady stream and, and especially with people with diabetes um, the, the referral is on the increase. Plus, we talked to Alison Northern, the Implementation Manager at the Leicester Diabetes Centre, to discover more about the My Desmond online education course for people living with type 2. We have a number of learning sessions on the platform, so they have videos, quizzes, animations, there may be some text to read or a link to an external um, reliable source. But yeah, all of those key messages around diet, physical activity, what's going on in the body, all of that is within the My Desmond programme. This is Claire Levy from Diabetes Research and Wellness Foundation. Our thanks to all the people who talked to us and also to you for listening. I'm looking forward to joining you again in our next edition of Living With Diabetes. Living With Diabetes is a Blue Aurora media production for DRWF. Copyright 2020 Diabetes Research and Wellness Foundation. All rights reserved. <laughs>